All right. <clears throat> so we're continuing to go through some of the uh, spiritual gifts and everything that we talked about. So um, it is good. We did have some, uh, we did have a few more people do the, the gift assessment and everything. So it continues to be kind of neat to see where the spiritual gifts of everybody kind of lay. And one of the things that, you know, if you did that, uh, that survey, first of all, if you didn't do it, then it's still there. You can still take it. It's not, not that hard, but, um, uh, it is also interesting not only to see what people got as like their top three, because that's, you know, kind of what the survey gives you by default is your top three, but also what, um, you know, kind of like how, much your top three are your top three because for a number of people they kind of had some of their gifts were, were kind of a little bit flatter you know so like the difference between their top three and the others were not that stark some of them you could see like a massive difference in between what they had you know um so for me i know like my top one and two were significantly higher than all the others and the third one was a lot below that the fourth was kind of barely below that and then everything else was way below that um, which is cool for the things that are your strengths, but then it makes you realize the things you're weak in. Oh man, you're really weak in. <laughs> so um, that being said, one of the things that was interesting to me as I was looking through some of the numbers is that that site will actually tell you uh, they acknowledge it's not a scientific study; it's just the you know summary of the users that they have in their system. But uh, it will tell you like among people who are pastors and among people who are non-pastors like what the distributions were of their gifts which was interesting because one of the things that you saw with a lot of pastors is typically not very strong in mercy showing. And I thought that was kind of fascinating. Um, but when you look at what mercy showing is, there's a facet of it that you can say everybody is called to do um, regardless. But then the calling is especially so on individuals who find this as a strength. You can look at the world that we have today and the reality is that the concept of mercy is something that is very sorely missing. And I don't just mean that in kind of like the platitude kind of way of like, oh man, the world today is so bad. I mean, I mean that as in I, I, I believe that there is sincerely something you could almost study at like an anthropological level where because of how much we were exposed to the aspects of other individuals and other people groups that we disagree with or that we find distasteful, it has actually conditioned us to feel less mercy. When you hear of somebody who is hurting, somebody who's going through a hard time, your natural inclination, I think, just as a human being, it's something that is kind of breathed into us as a part of having that spark of the divine is that we hear of somebody suffering and we naturally want to feel sorry for that. We naturally want to have something about that that we say, like, that's awful, I feel horrible, you know, if I could do something, you know, maybe I would or whatever. But I feel like because we have more information oftentimes on the people who are suffering, we tend to latch on to some of the information that we hear about these people and say, well, suddenly I feel less mercy because maybe those individuals caused whatever is happening to them. Maybe I don't have to feel bad for them because I feel like somehow in my mind I've rationalized that it is like maybe just or something for them to feel whatever the hurt is that they're feeling or to go through whatever they're going through. A great example of that, you don't have to look any further than many of the different uh, military struggles that we see going on in the, in the country right now. Now I can tell you right now, it's a matter of national policy and all that kind of stuff. I have a lot of reasons for thinking kind of the things I do when it comes to the geopolitical conflict in uh, Ukraine and what's going on in Gaza and everything. And I have very, very strong opinions on that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I think in those situations, because we have information about that, we tend to overlook the real cost of these conflicts. I can recall watching something that was talking about the sinking of the Muscova. 
And that, that cruiser, that was kind of the flagship of the, of the Black Sea fleet, you know, that the Russians had, they got sunk by the Neptune missiles. And when that ship got sunk, you know, it was the type of thing I was looking at it and I was just kind of curious, like, how does a modern warship sink? Because that's the thing. Modern warships don't really sink. I mean, you can, but it's hard. It's very, very hard because they're not built to sink. So they do not sink. Uh, but you can take them out of commission. But that ship sunk, and how did it sink? And you start looking through and seeing all these different horrible things that took place as far as, like, you know, there were all these air defense batteries, and I think it had, like, six, like, close-in weapon support things, and uh, only one of the six worked, you know, and it's because they had, like taken pieces and parts and like some of the sailors were selling them on the black market and some of them just didn't work because Russia's not good at maintaining things and all that. So like it couldn't defend itself. The fire suppression stuff didn't work because a bunch of that had been parted out and like all these horrible things. And you're watching this and going, man, those Russians, how could they be so dumb? It is entirely, they lost that ship because of their own carelessness and because of their own corruption, they lost that ship. And in the middle of me watching this thing, what was crazy is this uh, guy who was doing like the little documentary thing kind of basically turned around and said, but you know, the real cost of this carelessness is not the loss of a ship. And then what they talked about is the fact that there are so many lives that were lost on that ship. But not only were there so many lives, but because of the pride of the Russian fleet, they don't want to admit that they lost that many lives. So instead, instead of like the 100, something less than 100, people that they say that they lost, that you know, people think they lost, uh, the Russians were saying that they only lost 30-something people. Well, what that means is the remainder individuals are not officially acknowledged as ever having died. So what happens are the families of those sailors who left their sons to go off to war are left in limbo not being able to grieve for their children. Because even though they know, and everybody has told them, you're, we all know that your children are dead. They can't close that loop. They can't actually bury their sons. They're, they are forbade from burying or doing any kind of memorial services because their sons officially are lost, have not actually died. And so what you end up seeing is that the actual cost of this carelessness is something we look at and say, well, these people kind of deserve it. Look at what they're doing. Look at the big geopolitical thing. They're aggressing against Ukraine and all that. We can easily turn around and look at things callously in that way. But then when you start losing in all of that is the mercy of the individual person who's just caught up in the middle of all this. The stuff that happens in Gaza, regardless of kind of what your thoughts are on, you know, the, the bigger geopolitical situation and all that, I sit there and... I think about the fact that there are civilians that are caught up in the midst of this. Even if you can't have sympathy for a soldier that you know kind of signed up for it, you think about individuals who were just sitting there, getting up in the morning, going to whatever their school was, going to their job, and then a child that doesn't have their parents anymore. And, and you know, you can, again, you know, we can dehumanize it, which is exactly what ends up happening with the information we have. But we lose that sense of mercy. And I feel like that is one of the things that you saw happening throughout the Old Testament or Old Testament and New Testament as well, or individuals who would suffer these, these tremendous things. And because you kind of had this religious class, this pharisaical class, you know, rising up, they tend to look at everything through the scope of the information that they intellectually knew. That maybe this individual is suffering something because they earned that suffering, or maybe they did something, or maybe somebody in their family did something and they're getting punished for that. And what was being lost in all of that was the mercy component. Something that we end up reading in Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13, and this is something that Jesus Christ references several times that I know I mention all the time that I think is very, very powerful, is this right here. While he, Jesus, was reclining 
At the table, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, now when he heard this, he said, It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think the reason why that phrase right there that's taken out of that's taken out of the Old Testament is something that is is so impactful that I desire I desire mercy and not sacrifice is because that right there I think personifies so much of the spirit of what has been lost in a lot of our Christian society is there's a lot of people who are kind of culturally Christians that love throwing out some of the phrases like the whole like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and all that, completely devoid of the context of what any of that was being stated in the Bible to mean. And they will instead look at individuals who are around them all the time who need some kind of help or need some kind of assistance, or maybe there's a need encouragement or whatever it is, and yet, you know, turn around and say, well, but you know, there may be something about what's going on that rationalizes why I don't have to show mercy. So instead of approaching these situations with the attitude of how can I show mercy? Instead, we go into these situations frequently and say, how can I keep away from having to show mercy? I don't have to show mercy to that beggar on the street because he's probably just going to buy booze. I don't have to show mercy to those individuals that are living in a whatever kind of conditions and everything because you know what? They made a bunch of economical decisions with their personal finances and that led to that situation. You know, I don't have to give to something that's like a food bank or something like that because, I mean, after all, I don't think a lot of those people even need that and people, you know, uh, have all kinds of corruption in those kind of situations and get things they don't deserve. So we're very good at identifying reasons why we don't have to show mercy and sometimes in doing that, we're very poor at identifying the calluses that we've placed on our own hearts that prevent us from doing the work of Christ. Christ was, in fact, an individual who was absolutely full of mercy. And the reason why this becomes so important is because our mercy, in effect, ends up becoming a mechanism through which Christ strengthens other people. The one verse that we all know when we think about strengthening ourselves is we all think about this, Philippians 4.13, right? Oh, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we all think about that. But what is the context of that verse? I mean, you know, the first context is that people tend to slap those on like workout shirts and stuff and say, I can do all things through Christ. You go, well, that doesn't mean you, you can, you know, get big gains for Christ, you know, necessarily. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it's saying through Christ, through what Christ has called you to do. But there's an even bigger context, you know, in relationship to this subject of mercy that I think is important. Something that we read here in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 15. So it's that context around here is, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. This is Paul talking to the church in Philippi. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who gives me strength. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. And what I want to point out there is that you can see that Paul, even Paul, who sits here and had kind of mastered that 
art of being able to say whether I'm sitting in a prison with absolutely nothing or whether I'm, you know, enjoying everything that I have in great abundance, I can sit here and serve Christ. And yet you look at this individual that's kind of the picture of spiritual strength and you see Paul even exhorting the uh, church in Philippi saying, you were willing to sustain me. You were willing to give to me. So you can see that there is this sense of, of giving and mercy in a sense coming out of the church in Philippi as it relates to Paul and his ministry. That when nobody else would, you know, be willing to go out and try to provide some kind of comfort or relief to Paul, the church in Philippi was. And so as a result of the mercy that the church in Philippi was willing to show, you see Paul being strengthened through it even leading to that verse that we so often use as kind of the hallmark verse for strength through Christ. And I think that that's an interesting connection to make, to identify that a sense of mercy can lead to the strength of other individuals. And I think this is something that plays out very practically if you just stop for a second and think about it. As we show mercy to people in hard times, when they're like actually actively going through something difficult, it can help to sustain them, right? Right. When you're going through some kind of trial or you're going through some kind of difficulty, whether it's some kind of medical thing or whether it's an emotional thing, relationship thing, whatever, somebody coming and showing you just a little bit of mercy can be that little kick you need to get you over the finish line to help you to move through. So you're able to actually see how the mercy of one individual gives strength to another, another person through that, that, that sense of sustainment. When individuals are sad and are mourning, something that, you know, I feel like for whatever reason we've seen a bit over the last like several months with different, you know, funerals and memorial services and things like that, you can see how that sense of mercy that you show to somebody who is actively mourning a loss of a loved one or actively mourning something in their, something else in their life that, that may be weighing on them harshly, that can help to be a sense of renewal, to help them to be picked back up rather than kind of go the other direction that so many people in their mourning can go, where they sink into that deep depression. So having that sense of mercy can be that thing that lifts another individual up to kind of restore store them back to, you know, some sort of, of, of sense of normalcy in their life. But then there's also something else that may sound a little bit strange, but I think is also important, which is that when people are in times of abundance and when they're in good times, there's also a sense of mercy that comes to play. Because so often we can look at individuals who may seem like they have everything together, that seem like everything is going absolutely fantastic, and we can trick ourselves into sitting here and thinking, you know what, I mean, they don't need any sympathy, like they don't need any compassion, everything's going super great, they're doing super awesome. And what we lose in that so often is the fact that all of us, even at our highest moments, are fundamentally broken individuals. Not necessarily because of something in an earthly way that you've done or you've done or you've done, but because all of us have that seed of original sin that is built into our hearts and it causes us to doubt ourselves even at our highest highs. And so it's important that even when we see individuals where things appear to be going their way and where things appear to be successful, to still have that sense of mercy about individuals, to be able to see through the veneer of success that people may be wearing, to realize that everybody is in need of a little bit of mercy in their lives. And sometimes that little bit of mercy means going up to somebody in their high point and letting them, you know, being a part of their celebration, continuing to sustain them, continuing to support them, because that right there will help to give them that sense of thanksgiving. It may also help prevent them going down a different path of looking at themselves in their success and maybe tricking themselves into thinking that their success was derived because of something they did. Instead, because you were a part of their life and a part of helping to sustain them and remind them of that bit of 
of mercy that we all need, they may be able to see through those acts of mercy, even in their success, that, you know, even though I feel like I'm on the top of the world, I still need a sense of mercy, and that helps to ground people in understanding that bigger thing that Christ did. And I guess what I'm trying to say in a less abstract way is that mercy giving in a big way is allowing people to be able to see that nature of Christ in whatever they're going through. So often there are things that are in our lives that we're, we're dealing with that uh, may seem good or bad or indifferent, but that in all those, there's this, there's this sense of uneasiness that we can't get away from. There's a sense of, you know, if you're in a good time that, you know, eventually the good time is going to end. Or if you're in a bad time, it seems like the bad times won't ever end. And so there's a need for us to be able to look at other people and look at what's going on there in their lives, not through the lens of judgment and not necessarily through the lens of like what we can, you know, tell them they need to be doing this or doing that or anything. But the, the, the valuable sense of looking at other people's lives is to instead look at their lives in the same way Christ did and identify where can this individual benefit from some degree of compassion. And instead of, you know, instead of, you know, taking those opportunities as a, as a, as a, a moment where we can turn around and say, okay, uh, well, you know, I can look at somebody and come up with all the reasons where I don't need to show somebody compassion. Instead, look at somebody and say, where in the events going on in their lives can I take this as a launch pad to, to, as an opportunity to be able to show them Christ in some way, shape, or form? It's a different mentality that people have a hard time adopting, that mentality of looking for the opportunity rather than looking for the excuse not to. Now, when you go into this concept of mercy, one of the things that is... One of the things that you have to talk about, I feel like, is that story of the Good Samaritan. And something that I've talked about in the past, I think it's been a while, but the story of the Good Samaritan has a message of mercy that goes a lot deeper than what a lot of people, you know, just kind of at a surface level read into it. Because at the surface level, what it is, is a story of, you know, uh, some individuals who walked past an individual who was suffering and chose not to do anything, and another individual who walked by, had compassion, decided to help him out, and said we should be the good person who decided to help him out. That is the surface level read of that story, but there's a bit more to it. When you end up looking at this story in Luke 10, you see this, verse 30, uh, Jesus took them up on the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road when he saw him. He passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw, saw the man, he had compassion. He went, over to, um, he went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring, an olive, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So when you look in there, and as I was reading that, I think I might have missed something in there. But what you end up seeing in this parable are basically three individuals. You see a priest, a Levite, and then you see a Samaritan, right? And the context that's oftentimes missing from this is the fact that you have a priest who is an individual that has religious obligations. And these religious obligations partially mean that you know, there was actually a reason why he would not have wanted to stop for this individual. An individual who is near dead lying on the side of the road is ceremonially unclean. And a priest, what the individuals hearing this story would have understood is that the priest coming from Jerusalem to Jericho would have been coming from the temple, which is the place where he would have become ceremonially clean, and then going to Jericho to like the local 
temple, the local, local synagogue, where he then would be able to do different religious ceremonies and everything. And if he had touched this unclean individual, then he would have been unclean. He would have had to go back to Jerusalem, become ceremonially clean again, and then go back out. So in other words, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that the significance of the priest is not that, oh, you know, big holy man, you know, it's a big holy man, and so can't, can't be bothered. But rather that this is an individual that the individuals hearing this story wouldn't have actually blamed the priest. They would have said that actually kind of makes sense that a priest wouldn't want to touch this individual because there are religious reasons there are things that we know intellectually about this priest that mean that it's okay for him not to show compassion in a similar sense you actually have similar things for the levites where there would be similar uh, rules and similar uh, uh, kind of rituals and everything as far as what is important to a levite levite's kind of like a deacon but yet you see this other individual, even not being a priest, you know, couldn't bother stopping for this poor man on the side of the road who was near dying. But the significance of the Samaritan, which I think is even more poignant with everything that we see in the news today, is that the Samaritan was an individual that was absolutely detestable to the Jews. That when we read it in the Bible, we almost just read it as like two ethnic groups floating around in the same area. Not understanding that the... Samaritans were individuals who had different ideas on things like the lineage of the Jewish people and where the actual place was that was appropriate to worship. Um, they had these different differences that led to a historical schism between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. That when the Jews were in Babylon during you know all the books of Daniel and stuff like that, you know that you have uh, the 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 individuals who are still occupying the land of Israel who kind of intermarried with some of the. Uh, pagan pagan nations of that area. Those individuals would end up becoming the Samaritans later on. So you see, there was this there was this historical schism that had occurred that the true Jews said, "You weren't the ones who were in Babylon with us. You were these other Jews. So you're different, right?" So you have that historical difference. You know that historical privilege, so to speak. Then you also have that there's like an ethnic side of it because again, they interbred with some of the people that were not purely purely Jewish. So there's a historical schism, and then there was also a, a ethnic schism in between them. But then there was also the religious schism that existed in between them where they had different ideas on the fact that, you know, Samaritans said that it was in, you know, that the temple should be in one place and the Jews said it should be in Jerusalem. So there were different ideas that they had a religious and ethnic and a historical level. And when you look at this and you look at everything going on in the world today, you kind of realize that these types of conflicts are nothing new. There's really nothing, you know, it really is true, nothing new under the sun, right? And you end up seeing that the significance of the Samaritan is not just a matter of, oh, it's another individual who came along who actually had compassion on the man dying in the road. But instead, the significance is the fact that the Samaritan had absolutely every reason possible why not to help out this other individual. There was no individual in existence at that point in time that probably would have blamed this hypothetical Samaritan for not helping out this man. Because why would you? There were actually phrases, like colloquial phrases, that we have manuscripts of today where people you know, scrambled things down that basically said, the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. And so you can imagine Jesus Christ telling this story and you could almost imagine what the Pharisees, the purest of pure Jews, would have thought when Jesus said, but then a Samaritan came down the road. Even a Samaritan came down the road. It was willing to see compassion and mercy on this individual who was laying in need. 
And in that same sense, I think that's what we end up losing from these stories of mercy in the Bible is we kind of uh, have watered down the mercy of Christ into something that's like a general, like, be nice lesson. Like, you should be nice to other people, and that equates mercy. Not understanding that mercy is something that looks to go above and out of its way in order to show compassion to another individual. That just as we were talking about before, it, it, it's not inhibited by the barriers that we intellectually will put in place to prevent us from helping out another person. It's one of the things that should drive us to looking at somebody that maybe other individuals feel is unreachable and instead say, how can I reach this person? What's the small thing that I can do? If I can't reach somebody or I can't support somebody or I can't encourage somebody in a way that I'm accustomed to or the way I'm comfortable with, then what is the way that I can help out this person? Maybe it's not the way that in my mind I've concocted that I need to help people out. Maybe the way that I help somebody out is just by contacting them and sending them a random note, hey, thinking about you. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's all you can do. Maybe it's the fact that you see somebody that your brain is screaming at you, that you have all the reasons not to help out an individual, but you still do it anyway. Maybe it's something that in your head, it almost seems a little reckless, but you turn around and say, but I feel like my heart is driving me to go help out. So many times I feel like I've heard individuals say that, you know, we got to help people out. We got to be generous. We have to be compassionate. But you know what? We also, and they'll use the word discernment. We have to use discernment. And oftentimes what that is, is oftentimes we end up saying something is discernment when in reality, that's a dog whistle for, you know what? Maybe we should contemplate all the reasons why we shouldn't do this. And those are two different things. It's one thing to say we need to practice discernment and say, I need to separate the heaven of the thing from the earth of the thing and determine if God is truly calling me to do something. Discernment. I need to discern if I am letting the earth of the thing divert me away from where God is calling me using the heaven of the thing. And that's different than looking at a situation and saying, here's an individual right here. I could help them right now. I have it in me to be able to do something for this person, to encourage them, to lift them up, to give them a little bit of money if it's something like that, to give them some food, to give somebody a ride. I have the ability to do these things. But let me stop and let me use discernment to think of all the reasons why I don't have to do this. And then I'll decide whether I feel guilty enough to actually do it. And I look at this and it, once again, I have to go back to kind of this almost kind of cliche thing of, I thank God that Jesus Christ didn't rely on being guilted into helping me out. That his sense of mercy and compassion didn't become because I felt he felt guilty that he should do anything for me. Because if anything, the thing that we know in the scriptures is that whenever we see anything related to uh, you know, people wondering like why bad things happen to him or anything like that, well, what we see Christ saying is that, you know, uh, what is just is all of us deserve uh, death. <laughs> you know, we deserve these, you know, to, to, to you know, pay the, the penalty for our sin. That's what we deserve. It is only through mercy, not through guilt and not through compulsion, but it is through God's infinite mercy that he has shown mercy to us and that he has saved us and showed compassion and favor to us. So in the same sense, we have to look at other individuals and not sit here and weigh out scales of why we think somebody does and does not deserve mercy. But instead, we have to look at an individual and just say, if I have the opportunity, why wouldn't I? And approach it in that sense. 
as we sit here and I, I think about uh, all the pictures of mercy, the last one in my head that I'm kind of left with is something that uh, you saw in the Bible series that came out a few years ago. And I thought it was funny because somebody was, uh, somebody was asking me um, just a couple of days ago um, about the, the thing, The Chosen. And it's always like, just so you know, if you come up to me and you say like, oh man, have you heard of The Chosen? Yes, I've heard of The Chosen. Uh, have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it yet. Um, but I have people come up to me not too infrequently and be like, oh man, have you seen Chosen? And it's, it's almost enough people where I'm actually going to go watch it. Um, but you know, when we were talking about that, I was like, yeah, I was like, I, I think, I think, I don't know all the lore and history and everything, but I'm pretty certain that a piece of that was that like, you know, there were some of these other things that came out like the series, the Bible. And then some people said like, I don't think that's true enough to what the scriptures say. So then they crown funded the thing and they came up with the chosen. Um, I think that was kind of the auspice of it. But that being said, I actually liked a few things about the Bible and they're kind of to two different audiences. The chosen is clearly to Christians. Uh, the Bible series was to everybody. And so in order to do that, they did a couple things that kind of, uh, appropriated different verses in the Bible and kind of placed them in different spots in order to kind of tell the narrative to individuals who would maybe don't have that exposure, right? And there was one thing that they placed in a different spot that I thought was really interesting, and it comes from uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. So this is the part that we see in the Bible. Luke 18, starting verse 9, we see, He also told this parable, Christ, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. Thank God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's something in the telling of this parable that when you go and you read a lot of different biblical commentaries of, of different scholars and theologians over the years that, that will point out the fact that, you know, there is this connection here in between this parable and the fact that when God called Matthew, that Matthew was in fact an individual who had been a tax collector. And so there's a lot of people who will talk and, and kind of like, you know, theorize on exactly what the relationship is here in between this parable and the response that Matthew must have felt. And what is interesting in this series of the Bible, something that they put in there, is they actually play on that a little bit. And what they do is they actually show, you know, not necessarily, you know, historically what we have, you know, written out in the Bible explicitly, but what they do is they actually depict the calling of Matthew to be Christ going in front of the Pharisees and actually telling this parable. And as they go through and he's talking to the Pharisees, you know, who are, who are, you know, chastising him, you know, Christ is talking to him. There's Matthew over there as they depict in this scene and he's over there kind of doing his thing and he has his ledgers and all that kind of stuff. And he's just like listening to this Jesus guy over here. And as he gets to this part. They look over and they show Matthew on there and they show him sitting there with like tears coming down his eyes. And as Christ uttered these words, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. They show Matthew mouthing the words. 
And I always look at that and I just think that is such a beautiful picture of what I feel like Christ's mercy truly is. It's something that we have first experienced ourselves. When we think about what Christ has done in our own lives, we see that there was nothing that we did that was deserving of the mercy of Christ. We didn't earn it. There was nothing that we did that where we proved that we were religious enough. There wasn't, you know, despite kind of the fact of sometimes how it may come across, it wasn't a magical prayer that we said that somehow made it happen. It wasn't that we got sprinkled with water or got dunked or whatever tradition you have. The only thing that actually saves us from the sins and from the penalty of sin is the unadulterated, unblemished, the, the uncompromising sense of mercy that comes from Jesus Christ. It comes entirely from him. And so in the same sense, when we look at individuals around us who may be hurting, who may be actively doing bad things, who may be saying stupid things, individuals who may be going off and kind of living a certain way or whatever it is, instead of looking at these individuals and looking at it as an individual who is a judge or an executioner or sitting here saying, I need to let people know who are sinning. I need to let them know that they are sinners. I need to let them know that all these things, you know, are, 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 are going wrong and they need to live right and fly straight and all that kind of stuff instead of looking at it that way instead the attitude we should have is the same attitude that we end up seeing Christ having an individual who walked amongst the sinners and instead if anything appeared to have disdain from the individuals who thought they had it all together instead looks at every sinner and says I have mercy and compassion on these people it boggles the mind to think that the very individuals who hold themselves up as the most righteous even in our society today are most easily reflected in the Bible by the people that Christ actively had disdain for as he was talking. The individuals that our society, that so many Christians in our society look at and are so eager to find every reason in the world not to support are exactly precisely the types of people that Christ came to save. And it feels so wrong to us sometimes on the outside because it seems so unfair and it seems so unjust and it seems like it's it's just not right that these people, you know, I mean, how, I, yeah, if I sit here and do all the great religious -y stuff, then how should these other individuals be allowed to just continue doing whatever they want? Should, should they be allowed to get the same kind of love and grace of God that I got because I've been doing everything right. I've been sitting here, you know, sacrificing what I need to sacrifice, my cares and my time, my energy and all that and everything. And you're going to tell me that that individual who's doing all these horrible things, that they deserve the same gift. And if you look at the person of Christ, the only conclusion that you have is, yes, that's the whole point. The whole point is they deserve exactly the same mercy that you have. Because none of us can truly claim to have earned anything that we have. None of us have earned any of the righteousness or the benefits or the privilege or anything. So we should have the same attitude of care and compassion as we look at other individuals. So if we're individuals who are looking at ourselves and saying, you know what, I struggle with that gift of mercy. It's not something that comes natural to me. Then it's something that becomes an area of weakness that we need to look at as something that humbles us, that drives us to recognize how much greater Christ is than who we are. That's something that we may find so difficult that it may be so hard to look at another individual and say, you know what, that person desires exactly the same amount of love and compassion that I have. That, every single time we have that thought, should be a reminder of exactly how small we are in comparison to the love and the mercy of Christ. And with that humility, maybe that will drive us to be more merciful, more compassionate. To the individuals who do have that as one of their spiritual gifts, that they say, you know what, I am a merciful person. I'm somebody who feels that. 
then I guess there's a call to arms here. It's something where you can look at your job and say, it's, <laughs> your work is cut out for you. You have a tremendous thing that you have to overcome. And it's not just a tremendous thing in society, but it's a tremendous thing inside the church. Mercy is becoming increasingly uncommon. And so your job as an individual who has this spiritual gift is to let your gift be that much more visible, to be proactive, to try to be forward in offering that sense of mercy, to be the individual that sees an individual who is hurting and suffering on the side of the street, and when you have every reason to walk by them, you stop and you offer that amount of assistance. So all of us have something to take away from this sense of mercy. It should be deeply convicting, and for individuals who find this is something that they can do naturally, it should be incredibly motivating. So we should take stock of our own lives, the opportunities we have in our life, and try to be careful to watch out for those times when our mind may be screaming at us that you have every reason to use your wisdom here and use discernment and not help somebody versus opportunities where Christ is putting somebody right in front of you and just saying, on what basis do you have to deny them the mercy that my son so freely gave? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all of the mercies that you show us every single day, the blessings, the, the compassion that you show us even when we don't deserve it. We pray that you would help us to be individuals who are more compassionate and more understanding of the needs that are around us. Help us to be willing to step out on faith, to be willing to step out when it may, quote unquote, not be reasonable and actually show somewhat, somebody a sense of mercy that is becoming increasingly uncommon. Help us to be a part of a, a solution of, of, of showing individuals that there, there is still love that's in the world and that that love that's in the world is, is you in the world. Help us to be reflections of you in the lives of everybody that we see around us and especially those who are in need. We pray all these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen.